Hey guys, welcome to this episode of the Street Cop Training Podcast. I'm your host, founder and CEO of Street Cop Training. I am Dennis Benito. Today I'm with me, and I want to tell our story how we met. Uh, one of our top instructors, very good friend of mine. I've seen him extremely inebriated uh, at my house in my backyard at at least one occasion. And I'm proud to call him a very, very good friend of mine. We spent a lot of time together, even though we live about four and a half hours apart. But today, our Pennsylvania case law instructor, Dan Foster, joins us. And I am thankful that you're here. Even though we tried to put this together about eight times, we finally managed to uh, make it work. So welcome to the podcast for the first time, legendary Street Cup instructor, Daniel Foster. Well, that is uh, quite the introduction. I really hope I'm able to live up to being legendary. Let's talk about the beginning, man, and like how you found out about me. And then let's talk about all that cool shit. Cause we got a great story, you know, like we have, we have good shit. So how did you yeah. find out about me to begin with? So I was always the guy that like, you know, people at my agency made fun of for always seeking out training and going to training and taking vacation time, spending money to go to training. And yours was just one of the ones I heard about your class kind of through the grapevine. And I'm like, oh, that sounds, you know, really cool. Something I want to check out. So I took some vacation days and went to your class on my own dime. And um, I met you and, you know, we kind of just hit it off, which obviously you would hit it off with me. Why wouldn't you? But uh, I think initially you were like, hey, man, you know what you're talking about. Like, would you ever want to be an instructor? And I told you, I absolutely am not capable of being an instructor. And that went on for back and forth for about a year and a half. Until uh, I think one day you called me and you were like, hey, have you thought about it again for the 15th time? And I'm like, yeah, let's do it. So so yeah. interestingly enough, I did my first class in the Pittsburgh area uh, in that bomb zone of a place. What is that? Where did I teach? What, what town is Elizabeth, that? Elizabeth. Oh, yeah. Oof. Like what happened to that place? Holy uh, shit. Old mill town just kind of closed up, I guess. Oof. What a scary place. Well, anyway, I didn't know that like we kind of did things a little ass backwards to make a long story short. And I think I only had like 12 or 13 people in that class. That was years and years and years ago. So my cousin, who was my first admin here, she was like, you know, are you going to go to to Pittsburgh? I said, yeah. She goes, it's only 12 or 13 people in the class. I go, yeah. So what? I go, what do you think I'm going to do? I'm going to sit here and be fancy. I go, when I first started, I had 12 and 13 people in my classes. What are you going to do? Nobody knew who I was. So I'm going to go out there and try to unobscure it. And uh, if I didn't go, I would have never met you and would have been a huge mistake to have not have gone. And as a matter of fact, I think following up the following class we did when you hosted like 86 people in the class our second time around. So Dan put a lot of work into that. And um, that's where we really began our friendship. And I distinctly remember you being in the class and being very interested and asking a lot of questions and being very eager. And there's a fine line between sometimes in class of the person who really is there to soak it all in is really, really interested in it versus sometimes the strange person who I know is the oddball at their agency. And you're laughing because as an instructor, you sometimes know who those people are. Absolutely. And I was glad that I was able to, to discern you from that and uh, very eager to have a relationship with you. We went out to lunch. You guys put fucking French fries on a salad. Never saw that in my life. Biggest oxymoron in the history of the United States. <clears throat> I don't know why you would eat salad, put fucking French fries on it beyond me. And then finally, when I did convince Dan to, I think we should touch on the topic of your first class when it yeah, was hosted sure. in, that was where, not Lancaster, what's the one in the was, middle of Pennsylvania? Outside of Harrisburg. Yeah, Harrisburg. So yeah. 
you know, and I use you as an example to new instructors of like, nobody was worse than Dan the first time. <laughs> I think absolute fucking disaster is probably the best uh, group of adjectives for that class. Dude, nobody was worse ever in the history of this company for the first, and we had some bad ones for the first time than you. But I said to myself, well, okay, let's, let's talk about how bad it was. Dan was a wreck. And I actually had to stand up and co-teach the class. Thank God I was there. And I said yeah. to you, um, I think you've got this. You just got to dial in whatever this fucking disaster was. <laughs> but you know this stuff. You know what you're doing. And bro, we, we don't get so many great reviews on your program now. And that's why when I see somebody for the first time, I always tell them I'm not holding you uh, up to, to a standard other than We'll call it the Dan Foster standard. If you're if you're at least as bad as Dan Foster, not worse, <laughs> we can work with you. So I'm the benchmark for failure in this company. That's awesome. <laughs> yes, you are. I, I put my name on something finally. But dude, <laughs> it, it ended up being so good because now you're a very profound instructor and we get constant great feedback on the amount of context and information that people are getting out of your classes. So I well, try to paint a little picture here of like, yeah, you may fuck up the first time, but to show back up again and do it a second time, where was your second class? It was back there in Harrisburg. And you did it by yourself and and it was it worked out really well. Yeah. And I think I was in front of like 110 people that day. So nothing like, uh, you know, pulling out all the stops and I either had it or I didn't. And apparently I had it. So. What was the thing that changed, you think, the shift you made consciously to be better at that than, than you did before? I think kind of from what I told you all along, like I'm not an instructor. I'm a, I'm a police instructor. I do, you know, the annual taser updates and all that stuff. Like I didn't know how to be a good speaker, a good presenter, a good instructor. And, you know, just working with you and going off of your vision and some of the books you told me to read and videos you sent me. and tried to just change my style from being, you know, the typical in-service instructor to presenting at a high level. And you were committed, bro. I know you were, you were reading a lot of shit. You were on videos nonstop. You were committed. You were committed. Yeah. It was, I don't know what the time frame was between, you know, the first class and the second one out there, but I had my face in a book or listening to a podcast or something pretty much day and night from uh, the dates in between the two. And obviously it, it paid off because you know, I, I, I really don't know how I could have been any worse than I was, but I'm pretty happy with where, where I'm at. Always room to grow, always room to get better, but definitely miles apart from where I began. Uh, you and everybody else, including myself, by the way, I can tell you about the first time that I taught. Uh, I was a wreck. I was nervous. I didn't know how to work PowerPoint. I had bullet point after bullet point. I had no context. And one thing I kind of regret is not being an early adopter of the internet more because I was a typical fucking cop. I'm like, yeah, I'll handwrite this. You know, yeah, I'll, I don't need the computer. Oh, yeah, and I'll write it in a car. Right? I'll do this. I don't need the fucking e-tickets, right? I was one of those guys. So if I had been more of an early adopter of technology, I think probably would have had a little more traction earlier. And I would have found things. Again, it was 2012. A lot of stuff has come out since then. But I would have found probably better resources to make that earlier experience better than what it was. Now, the cool thing is you can come to Street Cop Instructor Academy uh, in some you know weird way. We call it that, I guess, and circumvent and 
get the five-year cheat sheet on learning things the hard way, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. What are some of the hardest lessons that you learned early on as a street, as an instructor, police training instructor? Like what are the, what are the good things you've learned? What are the bad things? I think definitely reading off your audience. I I didn't really ever understand how different rooms that you're in can have different energies. And depending on who you're speaking to, how many people were in there, how many people should fit in the room versus how many are there. I think reading your audience has a lot to do with it that I never really expected that being an element of being a good instructor, but learning to adapt the way you present or even your tone or your speed or anything, depending on reading off your audience. It's, that's actually a very excellent point. I was at recently at an event and I'm going to keep it very vague. And I was asked to speak at this event. And before I went up on the stage, three people came up and spoke prior to me. Um, I could not figure out how these three people back to back could not see half the people in the audience sleeping and the other half on their cell phones and the other 10% walking out continuously. Where'd you miss? Like when you're talking to a crowd, how are you not seeing that? And the host is texting me. He's like, these guys are fucking horrible. I'm like, yeah, of course they are because it's, it, they made it about them. They didn't make it about the people's experience in the audience. They made it about them. They wanted to sit and talk about themselves. And that's a big key to giving, giving a good class. It's not about you. It's about the experience, of the person sitting in the seat and what practical applications and, and context they're getting from sitting in that class for that six to eight hours that day? What are they going to take from there and and go and apply and and comprehend? And I don't think anyone really ever explained that to me until I met you. I mean, I, you know, I taught in service classes, you had to be there. So it didn't matter if you were enjoying it, if you were taking anything away from it. I mean, I was reading the bullet points and clicking through the slides. And if you fell asleep, Hey, you, you still signed off on the roster and you were there. So, you know, I think understanding that, the difference and really trying to provide value, you have to be able to read your audience and give them the value that they came for. You want to hear the first two classes I ever did? The first, <laughs> the first one is <laughs> I had been writing notes for about six months because I thought to myself, well, I could just training these people to really get in it. If I just write notes of the things that I'm seeing and explaining, you know, then I'm reading case law. So I'm putting all these notes down. I actually have my old case law books and I put like class and I would circle it because I was actually picking out if we're going over three, 400 topics in a promotional testing course. I was like, man, this would be really good for everybody to know. Like nobody knows this shit. So I sit down. Uh, I had a computer that fucking barely worked. I didn't even know how to turn on PowerPoint. I put like 10, 10 bullet points on a, on just one, like one slide <laughs> and just like went through them. But it was me and about five or six of my friends from work. We went to, we had a substation in our mall, which was like a closet that fit about 10 people in it. And I gave them the class because they wanted to know because they want to be productive. I never forget like going to lunch. What do you guys think? They're like, yeah, no, it's good, but you got to have stuff in your PowerPoint. You're just talking like off your notes. And like, we can't imagine what that is. And I was like, yeah, I, I guess that's right. I should probably stop drinking Jägermeister and probably get to work on this fucking thing. Second class I ever did after I polished some things was at a first aid building in my town. Oh, what a debacle. I'm trying to do it right, going through the training division, offering it only to the people that I worked with to try to do this test run. The big boss is coming out to watch it for a little bit. Dan, I had to fight with the administration because I didn't have any money to buy a projector. 
to use the first aid squad building's projector. And the one captain felt like it was his property and didn't want me touching it. And like to get the room, like, well, where do you want me to do it? We're having like 15 guys from the agency come. It's free training, right? I'm trying to roll it out and give your guys, we had like 15, 20 guys from my, my agency show up for that for free, right? They gave him the days off to come and do it. They sat in, the administration loved it. And I mean, what a headache. Like you can't use this room anymore. I'm like, I don't fucking understand. Just that constant, like this, the, the play. I always talk about police parts being the playground. This is my slide, right? Go play in your jungle gym. This is my sandbox. Like I just never understood it. I'll never forget this guy uh, who's our training sergeant. He was a wreck over pretextual stops. Just a fucking wreck. He could not understand. He just kept thinking like racial profiling, racial profiling is what it meant. And I'm like, he comes in. He's like, you understand that if you stop somebody on race, you're going to prison. It's official misconduct. You're going to do seven years in prison. And I'm like, oh, my God. please! This is like the whole is like five minutes before my class started him drilling into everybody's head. You can't stop people. for. I'm like, you realize that we don't stop people for race, right? Like. I know that you can't figure out in your mind from 1984 when you got on the job that we're not stopping people based on race. We're stopping for several other reasons, which are constitutionally compliant. And that's how we're having success in finding guns and drugs and wanted people and missing people and stalkers and fucking stolen this and this and fraud. But those that's my early story, dude. And I'm telling you, I. I uh, constantly even now you can you I'm sure you can attest to this, that these training programs continue to approve even mine. It's something different every single time. Maybe not all I've of it. Through your course, probably like four or five times, and it's it's different every time. It's evolved. It's gotten better. It's gotten more polished, and it's it continues to provide more and more value every time I sit through it. Do you think that you'll ever stop working on your program? Uh, probably not. Especially with like my case law classes, they change literally every time I teach them. I just taught a class yesterday and I had new topics that I talked about that I didn't talk about in my class two weeks prior because court decisions come down and it just changes the way that we have to do things or the way I have to talk about things. What did you have anything recently that has changed in Pennsylvania? Um, Nothing too substantial, just um, different stories that I talk about and different cases that might apply to those stories. Nothing earth shattering or, or landmark decisions have come out real recently, but I always like to keep updated cases in there to make it relevant for everybody. Well, it shows that you're on top of your game as well, too. Um, I know that we have talked about doing a lot of things and nothing more exciting for me to work with an instructor to move on to additional courses that people are going to teach. And I know that you are motivated to start working on a field training program for everybody. What motivates you? So a little bit of a personal story here. I mean, I am an FTO now. I've been an FTO for many years, but it didn't start there. Um, you know, I work for an agency now that is pretty solid, um, you know, great supportive administration. We've got good policies. We've got a solid FTO program. But prior to that, um, when I was, you know, fresh in law enforcement right out of the academy, I worked for another agency who didn't have any of those things. We didn't have even a semblance of a field training program. And I will never forget my first day walking in um, on the job and ready to go and expecting to meet, you know, who was going to be training me and everything. And I walked in, there were a couple guys sitting around in the patrol room and I said, Hey, you know, I'm the new guy here. Um, you know, what are we doing? They're like, there's a keyboard up there. Um, you know, whatever hook still has keys hanging on it means that car is available. So um, take a set of keys, whatever car you like and 
go out and come back in eight hours. Don't get yourself into anything you can't get yourself out of. Make sure you have your radio on. And I'm like, okay, not really, you know, what I expected, but uh, I don't know any better. That's what they're telling me to do. So I'll go with it. So I grab a set of keys and walk out, find the car that it belongs to. I get in and I'm like, well, I guess I should probably, uh, you know, learn my way around town and figure out the area a little bit. I got eight hours to kill. So I start driving. I leave the station. I go probably no more than a quarter mile, half a mile up the right way. And there's a, uh, a guy, a young kid walking down the street, waving a rifle around. I'm like, well, this is a little bit odd. And I'm like, wait a minute. I'm a, I'm a cop now. I'm in a police car. Like I should probably um, intervene in this. So I jump out of the car. I, I get the kid at, um, at gunpoint and I start giving him commands. And ultimately the situation resolved itself. It ended up being, you know, a juvenile with an air rifle, but we were in a particularly um, high crime neighborhood and it, it could have went a lot of different ways. And it worked out in hindsight, thankfully, pretty good for me, but it gave me the realization like, holy shit, I, I have no idea what I'm doing. Nobody's here to teach me. And by the time my backup got here, this could have went south really quick had the scenario played out a little bit differently. So I think from that moment, um, I kind of realized the importance of having a field training program, but it's also what led me to be that guy that, you know, spent my own money and my own vacation time to go to training and and to learn because I realized that nobody was going to teach me. And even the ones I asked questions to some of the answers seemed so outlandish that I knew they couldn't be correct. So I figured I had to figure it out on my own. I think people would, would conceive that we are trying to push people to spend money of their own to go to training because we're a training company that procures revenue and you know it's the fuel for us to be able to have continuous growth and change. Uh, we're not saying that. Every instructor at this fucking company, every instructor's company spent a lot of time, their own time, and a lot of their own money on going to training programs to get themselves better because there is one common denominator amongst everybody, and that's these are the people who were the exception. When you're a field, when you're an instructor for street cop training, there is something that you possess above and beyond that gives you the ability to come out and get the blessing or the, have the audacity to teach others. Because number one, at the very core, you give a fuck. You care. You know what I mean? Like you just do. If you didn't care, you wouldn't care. You know, right. you think about it, right? So, yeah, your story is no different than anybody else. I mean. Brad will tell you how much time he spent on his uh, on his training and how much money he spent. And TJ Cullen from Trapvine will tell you the same thing. And I think everybody I've ever met who's really a success in this industry or in any industry, let's take it out of the police context. Yeah, I'm a police instructor. I'm a police trainer. I run a police training company, but I'm a businessman. I spend an ungodly amount of time, energy, and effort in business education because I have to Make sure that I'm doing what's best for me, for the world, for the employees that work here. And that's when I say for me, I mean like making sure I take care of myself mentally, physically, making sure I can procure enough revenue and make enough decisions that everybody here has enough money to feed their families because they show up here every week and say, We trust that you are going to make decisions and take actions that are going to provide for me and mine. And by the way, I'm not discounting the amount of energy and effort everybody else puts in, but that's my obligation to having success. I think about like, man, we really do have a chance of changing things, right? Yeah. Like, really, we really do. 
Um, and that's a that's a heavy weight to carry. It's a big burden. I think, you know, in terms of putting energy and effort and time and money into police work on your own, it comes down to how you view it. And I view it as a profession. It's not just a job for me, just like, you know, I know how emotionally involved you are with police training. It's not just a job for you. It's not about owning a business. It's about changing the game, changing the world, Um, you know, changing police work for the better to make it better for everybody. And that's kind of how I view the profession in general. I'm, I'm a professional. I show up to work every day. It's, it's my life. And um, I'm going to dedicate you know, myself to not only making myself better, if that costs my own time, costs my own money, I'll do that. But now through you know, street cop training, I'm able to convey a little bit of that to people that come to my classes where I can help them be more successful and I can help them not make a lot of the mistakes that I made or not be thrust into a lot of the situations I was thrust in and teach them from my experiences and from my failures and hopefully, um, you know, provide a little bit of value to the point that, you know, maybe somebody can not wind up in, in a precarious situation or maybe go home safely based on, you know, something I can teach in class. What's interesting is <clears throat> we get this subpar training and I say that very, very kindly when I say subpar and, and, and we're doing a job that literally could take your life at any moment. Right. I mean, even from something as simple as did you learn how to drive hot to a hot call? Did you have somebody in the car telling you what to do when you're driving hot and what to pay attention to, or are you just running hot like a fucking bat out of hell? And you know, the cop is just like held so responsible. You should have known better. Nobody ever taught me. Vicarious liability. I mean, these departments that don't have field training programs or have, you know, field training programs where they check the boxes and like, oh, yeah, you know, you rode with Larry from day shift for three days. He taught you everything you need to know. You're good to go. I mean, that ultimately reflects back on the trainers, on the supervisors, on the department, and they can be or will be held responsible when something does happen. It's interesting that it's talked about. Somebody said to me one time, well, listen, if something happens, everybody's going to say you didn't have enough training. That's going to be part of the lawsuit. I go, agreed. However, if you are in a civil litigation and you can show a lot of training versus no training, that number, that variable of what the person may receive could be worlds apart. I find it, I don't find it comical. I find it disheartening. And there are so many resolutions to getting these cops the training they need and deserve. But you got to take that person who's savvy and relinquish the reins to them and say, hey, you seem like you're savvy. Is there any way you can find more training for us? So maybe it's departments saying to their, you know, to their council, hey, guys, uh, our guys need training. Our men and women need training out here. And, and if you don't provide them a training, we are putting ourselves out there for extreme liability. Or maybe trying to find, you know, grant money. Why? Sure. Why are we not trying to find grant money? There is a lot of grant money being written, and you can actually use a lot of grant money for a lot of reasons that would behoove your men and women. And at very minimum, if you're so liability-driven and focused, I'm telling you, you show up to a litigation where you're being sued and your training records have three classes in 11 years versus somebody who shows up and has 164 classes in 11 years or whatever it may be, or 112 or 94. Very different numbers at the end. Absolutely. You, even as, think about how 
how easy it is to get 70, 80,000 bucks from a police agency when something goes wrong. It's easy. Piece of cake. All right. They got you. You screwed up. You made a mistake. They're going to sue you. You're going to pay them off for 80 grand. What kind of training could you could you get for $80,000? Probably training that would have actually prevented this lawsuit from happening in the first place. But yeah, a lot. I mean, that's probably much higher. $80,000 is probably higher than most agencies' annual training budgets by far. Oh, yeah. It's wild, dude. It's just, it's just completely wild to me. And it comes down to people making decisions need to know how to make good decisions and lead better. If you don't know what to do, ask people. You don't have to have the resolution to every problem. We need to find is the person who knows how to resolve every problem that you have. Yep. You know what I mean? That's good leadership right there. Yep. And people- I tell people all the time, I understand not everybody can make it to training because their agencies won't send people. They won't um, you know, pay for training. They can't get there for whatever reason, manpower issues. I tell people all the time, you know, not only do we post a ton of stuff in the group, but reach out. Like I'm not here to you know, make you come to my class. I will gladly help you in any way I can. I'm, I'm a phone call and email away. You know, we're not keeping anything from anybody. Yeah. Don't call me. So <laughs> I'm uh, I'm a little too busy these days. As a matter of fact, years ago, when this thing started really picking up, I was like, there are going to be days where I'm just not, I mean, I'm, dude, I have so many pending messages. I just merely can't get to them. Uh, people do I mean, not realize play, the front tag all the time. Yeah. And dude, I don't mean anything by it, but I, think people don't really understand the context of how busy one is. And I'm sure I'm going to get busier. So I'm at that point in my career where I'm just constantly playing the game of leverage. Like there are 90,000 things that get piled on me every day. And I'm just like shuffling them out. Like you take this one, you take this one, you take this one, you take this one. And in order for it to grow, I cannot get bound down in the minutia of being able to respond to every single thing that comes across. Because I have to weigh into what's the most important. Yeah. There's a significant importance level to answering somebody's question, but it probably does a lot more significance to go into the group and post or make something that's important, factual, or get a new hire on that can create three new posts a day or whatever it may be, finding more instructors to train more cops. So there's a lot of things that you got to keep in mind as to um, you know why I guess sometimes we are we are busy. How about three? qualities that are essential for a field training officer. And they can be very macro or very micro. So in your opinion, Dan, three qualities for a field training officer. And I don't know if you've done a lot of pontificating. on. Sure. Yeah. Um, No, I think number one, I think is an understanding that everybody brings something to the table. Um, Everybody has their own experience, especially with what I've been seeing lately in terms of the types of people that are entering the law enforcement profession. A lot of them are older in life. They've been through other things and maybe where the average age isn't 19, 21 years old now. I mean, I've been seeing cops consistently hired now that are 28, 29, 30 old. Maybe some of them have been to college. They have other experiences where, you know, I, I think a lot of times through police training, it's like, oh, you're new here. You know, you don't know anything. We're going to teach you everything you need to know. Whereas they can relate a lot of life experiences to police work. Some of the best cops I know are some people that can relate life experiences to how they talk to people, how they engage with people. And that definitely um, helps them find success in their career. So I think just an understanding that everybody brings something to the table is probably number one. Just kind of an aside on that. um, One of the guys that I um, used to work with, we had like a department meeting and there was a younger officer that was new with the department that stood up and 
chimed in on something and an older officer stood up and said, you need to sit down. You haven't been here for five years, so you don't have an opinion yet. So uh, I think uh, maybe an understanding that everybody has an opinion is probably paramount in successful field training. What's the next quality that somebody who is a field trainer should have? Um, Number two would probably be patience, understanding that they're going to make mistakes. You should probably encourage mistakes to an extent. I know personally, I've learned more through making mistakes and through failing than I probably have just getting a hole in one on the first try. So I think an understanding that, you know, mistakes will happen. And as long as they're not too egregious or, or violating somebody's constitutional rights or something like that, allow mistakes to happen, use them as a teaching point and have the patience to be able to do that. Number three from Dan Foster. Number three. Um, I think today's officers, the people that are entering law enforcement in general, want to be inspired. They don't necessarily want to be managed. I know for me, even when I came in law enforcement over a decade ago, I was very inspired to this passion. It's something that I felt was in my blood and I I wanted to get out there and, and do it well. And when we enter a job, when we come to a department where maybe the trainers or the administration is all about micromanagement and policies and not letting us actually do the job. I think that kind of um, curtails some of that fire, curtails some of that inspiration. So I would say maybe um, gear your training more towards inspiration than management. Although management obviously is certainly an important role, you have to be able to balance the two accordingly. Mm, Very good. And I'm going to pepper in my bonus one which I think is actually caring, caring enough to have sure. the patience at a top level to work with somebody and want to get them trained right so they can have a fulfilled career. And that's really where I went. I said, when I would get somebody to feel trying to go, I'm going to take this person and give them the best that I can as an experience, treat them with respect. And because I give a fuck about them, this job, the public, and their career, and they're my backup officer. And I want them to hear the things that I think are important. Like anytime you see a police car, if it's our agency or not, you pull over and make sure they're all right. You always get behind these guys, say, what's, make sure they're good. You want to pull up and give them a thumbs up and they're fine. That's fine. Sometimes I don't even let them just like, I'll hang out with them, even not even ask if they want me to stick around or not. Cause you don't know when things are going to go bad. So, you know, things like that are important. Hey, you hear the radio, listen to the radio all the time. Always have your radio on. Always know where everybody is. Keep your account for it, where everybody is, because shit hits the fan. You're not going to know where to go. Know that we have double named streets. Know which part of town this guy is in. We're in a big town here. Um, And all that stuff stems back to caring about everybody, including myself, as to why I would spend so much time, energy, and effort. Because I got to tell you, it's much easier to just get in your car and not give a fuck. Sure. And those are the kind of things, you know, those points making are the kind of things that aren't boxes that can be checked. So when you have a field training program that's all about, you know, signing off on this task, this task, everything was completed. Therefore, you know, they, they passed field training. You can't um, relegate those things, the understanding, the empathy, the caring, the stopping and checking on other officers. That's not something that you can put in a check the box. You have to have a field training officer that is um, adept to teaching those things. So here's a quick share for you, and I will keep it very vague because I'm working on it. It's one of my many, many projects, a virtual FTO program, knowing that one of the biggest detriments and issues in law enforcement is field training and 
probably 85% of cops get a shitty field training officer. And it really molds their career to being a less fulfilled career, less mentally fulfilled career. Uh, you know, just so virtual FTO, I'm not going to give any more details about it. But when I look at something and say, this is failing, it is failing tremendously. This is one of those issues that we need to address. How do we address it? And the answer is virtual FTO. And it won't be out tomorrow or next week or next month. But in the future, you will see Street Cop training with something called the virtual FTO program, just like I have virtual academy programs in my mind of how that's going to work. And I think to say it out loud, people are like, yeah, this fucking guy's crazy. Okay, we'll see. And I'm crazy enough to believe that it actually might resolve some issues because I was crazy enough to think that I could help a little bit and, and then Dan could help and other people could help as well. So we got some big plans for the future and we'll take collective efforts from not only our instructors and our staff here, but from the whole world to get feedback, to make this thing better, because what's the number one goal? Less dead cops, more bad guys in jail, less victims. That's really, if you really think about what we're doing, that's really it. That's what we're, that's what we're about. Yeah, no, I, I think, you know, speaking for myself, I'm very thankful that you're a little crazy. And I think law enforcement in general <laughs> over the past couple of years is, uh, I don't think I'm crazy. I think I just, thankful. I just, when I say crazy, it's like, I'm, I'm, I'm just somebody who is not willing to pander to the no. I heard no my whole life as a law enforcement. Nah, we're not doing it that way. Nah, we don't do it that way. I think we should do this. You look at these cars. They're good. Nah, we're, we're, they already picked the cars. Well, we're going back to fucking Crown Vicks again. You got the, you got the caprices out. They, we can't win in car chases, guys. Yeah, the deputy chief found 11 that were left over at this Ford dealership. We just took those. It was the, like, it's not the answer anymore. You know, and I'm not going to fucking pander to it. I'm not going to pander to an administration. One of the funny ones I hear now is like, yeah, our administration thinks you make fun of administrators on Instagram. And I'm like, well, I do. The fucked up ones. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, of course I do. Like, we're now calling out everything that's wrong. Because if we don't, nothing's going to get resolved. And if we don't train the new generation, we'll never have change. They're going to they're going to act like their predecessors. They're going to do the same shit these motherfuckers did. And it's not the right way to do it. I'm sorry. It's just not. And my friend who's a chief of police is on the phone with him this past week. And I go, uh, you know, Mike, somebody said that. And he said, that's fucking funny, bro, because I love him. And I'm a chief of police. He's like, and I couldn't agree with them more. I said, he goes, I, I and this is a hit. I didn't even have to say it. He goes, I'm sure the guys that, that, that don't like it are the guys you're talking about that everybody hates. And I go, bingo. I always hear that, bro. You know, it's crazy. There was a lawsuit that came out in the paper yesterday. And uh, I remember this agency was like criticizing me and they're like, nobody's going to this guy's class anymore. It's so fucking funny how every time I hear about an agency that won't send people to our training, that like then they're in the paper, right? They're like getting chiefs getting sued. There's a vote of no confidence. There's there's law heavy lawsuits. There's all these things going on in the agency. But I was pointed out as the dick. Happened, dude, literally yesterday. I, I I will show you the article. I'm like, look at this. And I'm not gonna take an opportunity to go, you see. That's what you get when you're fucking like, and I called them. I was like, hey, how you doing? I'm, I heard you guys have a problem with my training. And I'll like, yeah, we'll get back to you. I'm like, no, no, let's have a conversation. Um, let's just have a, they would they ran for the hills. Right. I how'd you hear about they want to, how'd you hear about that? How'd you hear about that? No, I'm not throwing anybody out. Like it gets back to me. I know what agencies, the fucking 26 in this state out of the fucking 550 that there are, and I'm using crazy numbers, that don't like this. Same place that everybody's fucking miserable. And these people are so goddamn delusional that they think they're doing a good job by keeping them away from somebody who's telling them how to make things better. It's fucking ludicrous. And I think think what it comes down to is you're 
um, ambitious and you're willing to break the mold to fix the problems that everybody knows exists, but the way that um, you know a lot of agencies or a lot of training companies or whoever tries to fix them is the same old, same old. Doing the way you know things the way we've always done them, and anybody who has a different opinion is crazy. So yeah, maybe you're crazy in that regard, but uh, I think it's a pretty good crazy to be because you know you truly are helping fix a lot of the problems. And oh, you're telling me you're telling me getting a foam baton and sticking somebody in a red suit once a year and yelling "get back" while you're like like the little little guy in the agency tries to attack you, and they're like, if you hit him enough times in like the calf, he'll drop. Like, what are we doing? And the good news is we're not the only ones. I saw a video today of another training company. No idea who the guy is. Very impressed to see they were doing real life physical training scenarios with fucking sim guns and masks and helmets. And um, I forgot who put it up. Uh, oh, uh, one of our guys who's, who's a big supporter of the company. It's on his personal Facebook page. And I wanted to reshare it, but I wanted to give credit where credit was due. I don't know these people, but I said, now that's good police training. This is a guy, the scenario was the guy's up against it. Maybe somebody will know what this is and can send it in. The guy's up against a Connex box. They must have been using some field somewhere. It looks like it's in the South based on the, the foliage. And that guy starts fighting as he's trying to go under arrest. And they're really, it's really looking like, a, like, and the dude's coaching him like, yeah, spread out, like, like fucking base out, base, base right there. Grab his hand, like grab that. This is real training, not get back, get back, get back, yeah. get back. Right. Like, like that, show me a video where get back, get back was screened and people listened. All I Never. see the videos of people fucking like, get back. And like people are like falling over and cops get the shit kicked out of them. It's what are we, how many videos we got to see cops losing fights before we start saying something's not right. That kind of training, whether it's, you know, tactical, physical training or case law or anything, it creates training scars. I mean, that is how you're going to act in the field. You lose that uh, pragmatic approach to where you can, you know, read and feed off of the situation whenever you think, oh, you know, I was taught in training this way. It worked in training. It's going to work in the field. And then ultimately when it doesn't, you're like, oh shit, what do I do now? It's crazy, dude. I like the red man suit with the sticks with the foam batons, like just stop it already. Like we got to make like people are going to get hurt. Yeah. Well, let them get hurt in fucking training, get rid of them because they're going to get really hurt in the field. They're going to get other people hurt. So like, I don't care what you say, like let them get hurt in training then. I don't know what to tell you. Yeah. And I, I get it. Like there are, there are certainly, uh, but we have to, what point can we say we can't worry about the litigious part of it or, or, or losing a guy or losing a girl. I don't mean that in death. I mean like that they got injured and hurt their knee in the Academy. Like, okay. So what, you're not going to train 25 people in Brazilian jiu-jitsu because one person is, uh, is susceptible to getting a boo-boo. Yeah. Like, so 24 people get to go out with no training because you got to play it safe into a fucking profession that you'll die. Like you'll die and people are going to fight you and people are going to run from you and, and they'll kill you. Like they'll fucking kill you. Call it like, let's call it what it is. They'll fucking kill you. It's wild, dude. It's better to, uh, it's better to bleed in training than it is in war. Dude. Um, fortunately enough that we stand by the truth and that's who we have on our side. And it seems to be prevailing. And I had a guy message me yesterday on a Facebook business page. And he said, I used to be, I used to hate you guys, but now I get it. I said, welcome to the team. He goes, I literally thought everything you talked about was fucking nuts. And you're right. And I went, I don't, I'm not looking for me to be right. I'm looking for cops to not die. Sure. Like I'm hoping I'm right. And if not fucking tell me and we'll change it. You know what I mean? Like, well, we'll just, Hey, that thing you said, or that thing you're doing, that's not gonna be impactful or, or, or significant. Okay, what do we do then? 
because I'm tell us we're, we're in. You got our support. I'm lining up with fucking I was on the phone with Adam Hadari today. He runs police posts. Uh, I said, you know, Adam, you and I and, and other people who are really having impact and change and how this thing's being done, we're all going to be together just steamrolling this motherfucker into a better, better world. And we're all going to team up and continue to stay together. Hopefully we'll be friends forever, never get anything coming in between us, convoluting the conversation and just focus on what our jobs are to do. And that's to be these next generation of law enforcement leaders to help create and mold future leaders and future better things. A favorite book that I recommended to you that you that you loved? Ah, for instructor related stuff? No, just in general, dude. What was the most impactful book that you think I provided to you that suggested that was good for you? And it it broke to be simple as the tax-free wealth book. Yeah, I mean, there there were so many. Rich Dad, Poor Dad, Tax-Free Wealth, anything by Gary V, um, Talk Like Ted. I mean, you name it, Grant Cardone, (laughs) just anything in the business or uh, leadership section, definitely, um, definitely good. Yeah, I, I've, I've gotten some good stuff, dude. I've got some real good books lately. Yeah, I've I've, uh, I've expanded off of, you know, some of the ones you've recommended. I've gone and researched those authors and read, or I don't really read books. I don't really have time to read. I listen to a lot of audio books, but I've listened to a lot of um, audio books from the same authors from other ones that you've recommended. One last question before we leave is what has been the best fulfillment or the best thing that has come out of you being a law enforcement instructor? I think it's the messages that I get from people that, hey, I took your class. Um, you know, I was able to arrest this person or, or get this seizure or do something based on, you know, what I learned in your class. And it just, you know, it makes me feel good knowing that I'm able to impart a little bit of that success, a little bit of that knowledge to other cops, whether it's one cop or a hundred cops. I mean, I'll come teach a class to anybody, no matter how many people are there, if I know that I can bring that value to somebody. So definitely, I think it's the messages are very gratifying to me knowing that I was able to help somebody have a little bit better, a little bit better career, whether it be a drug seizure or a good arrest, whatever. It's great, man. Well, listen, we're going to do this again. Absolutely. I'm sure we'll talk in the interim as we usually do. For sure. Uh, I appreciate you tremendously for being on today, dude. And it was, was, I'm sure people found value and, and impact in this podcast and Always a pleasure. I'm thankful all the time. I've never said a bad word about you in my life. And I'm thankful that you are a part of my team and our team and that you wear the company logo with pride and represent us very well. And oh, wait, tell the story real quick before we go. Tell the stories about you and Marcus Luttrell having dinner together. <laughs> um, yeah, so we are... Uh... We are on the way back from the airport. Uh, so let's, let's go back a little bit. With the Street Cop Training Conference 2021, Marcus Luttrell, lone survivor, is one of our keynotes. Dan uh, was helping out a little bit. We kind of spaced out. They needed. We wanted to shove people back and forth. We had a nice car to do it in. So Dan went. We wanted armed security for these guys. Dan was able to shoot out to Philadelphia International Airport, pick up Marcus. So t- walk us through what that was like. So pick him up from the airport. Um, awesome guy. He's a very interesting person to talk to. Um, we're driving back, you know, having some um, unique conversation back from Philadelphia airport. It's pretty late at night. So Marcus wanted something to eat. He hadn't eaten on the plane and uh, he wanted to get something to eat. So I'm like, well, you know, Atlantic City, it's not like Vegas. Everything closes down like it's 11 o'clock at night. I, I don't know where we can get food. So I called one of the uh, admins with Street Cop. I'm like, hey, 
Marcus wants food. You know, you need to find something that's open. Call me back. Tell me where we're going. So I get a phone call back a couple minutes later and she says, well, your options are um, Applebee's or McDonald's. So I look at Marcus. I'm like, well, sir, your, uh, your options are Applebee's or McDonald's. He's, it looks like we're going to Applebee's. So we get to, uh, we get the order placed and everything. We get to Applebee's and I go to get out to go in to buy the food. And he's like, no, no, I got it. I got it. So he walks in and gets the food and comes back out and I'm, I'm offering to pay. And I'm like, well, man, like I, I can't let you pay for the food. Like if anything, let me at least pay for, you know, my portion of the food. Cause he insisted that, that I ate as well. And uh, he looks at me and he goes, Dan, when is the next time in your life that Marcus Luttrell is going to ever have an opportunity to buy you dinner? He goes, let me buy you dinner. So I was like, well, it, you're Marcus Luttrell. I can't argue with you. So Marcus Luttrell bought me dinner at Applebee's and we went back and uh, ate some prime rib dippers in his hotel room. <laughs> <laughs> he told you you were eating them, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He's like, you're, you're coming to eat with me. Yeah, absolutely. That's fucking great, dude. So you didn't even have an option. You're like, he's like, you're coming back to my hotel room meeting with me. Yeah. Wouldn't take no for an answer. And I mean, I, I really wasn't about to tell Marcus Luttrell no. So. <laughs> and that was uh, somebody you had a lot of um, admiration for, correct? Yeah. I mean, I had a lot of admiration for everybody that was at the conference. But uh, yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm very appreciative of the opportunity to you know get to talk to him and have a real one-on-one conversation with somebody who is absolutely an American hero, an American legend. And you know, thank you for that. No, you can thank me. I'm not fish for compliments. I just, I like the story, dude. Cause I like to tell people that story. Like how Mark's like, you're eating dinner with me. And you're like, okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It was a good time. Awesome. All right, man. I will see you next time. All right. Sounds good. Thank you. Bye.